Hey, it's Flames, and this is Climate Changers, a podcast where we celebrate the heroes who are on the front lines of creating a new and sustainable resource and energy economy. Today, my guest is wildlife biologist Douglas Chadwick. Hi, Doug. Welcome to the show. Good morning, and thank you. Congratulations on your new book. It's literally hot off the presses from Patagonia Publishing, and it's titled Four-Fifths of Grizzly. What does that mean? <laughs> Grizzlies are one of my favorite companions, and, and I say that in the sense of I'm drawn to go watch them at a, at a respectful distance. But uh, at places like Salmon Streams in Alaska, a respectful distance doesn't need to be more than 10 feet because they're busy and they're full. I live in grizzly country in Montana. I've spent a lot of time in their terrain, their domain. And besides the pleasure of watching an animal that I can easily relate to, there's a reason bears are in so many storybooks and why we have teddy bears and bears advertise products and all that sort of thing. They make me feel alive in a way I really can't elsewhere because all my nerves and my glands and my reflexes and instincts are all keyed up to a, you know, a high pitch. And being in grizzly country is sort of my guarantee that the rest of the wildlife community is going to be there because if it's good enough and big enough and wild enough for grizzlies, it's good enough for everybody else that belongs in that terrain. And it also is my guarantee of good water and cold mountain air and you know, just beautiful surroundings. So anyway, I'm drawn to watch them, but I want to make clear from the start, this book is not four-fifths about grizzly bears. It's got grizzly bear stories in it, but the title refers to the fact that I share at least 80% of my genes with a grizzly bear and with every other one of the 4,600 mammals on the planet. And the subtitle of your book is A New Perspective on Nature That Might Save Us All. What is that new perspective? Look, the findings of the last few decades in science, in microbiology, in molecular biology, as well as in the kind of field research I've done or have accompanied researchers on, is telling us we're not who we think we are. And we're trying to save nature in a increasingly urgent situation. And nature doesn't work the way we think it does. We've got tales we tell ourselves and myths and assumptions that uh, we've been working with a long time. And the nature of nature is is something I felt I, I'd been going around the world looking at snow leopards, whales, coral reefs, uh, wild camels, um, the last grizzly bears in the Gobi Desert, for example. But I realized the rate at which animals are vanishing, not, both as species as a whole going extinct, but also just in terms of numbers, um, is shocking. We Seven out of 10 of the of big mammals in the world in terms of sheer numbers, are no longer here since 1970. And so I don't have time to keep writing stories and books about individual animals or individual wild places that need attention. I I think the only way we're going to get ahead of this curve of loss is to rethink 
our relationship with nature. And that means knowing more about what goes into the making of us and what goes into the making of other creatures. You mentioned your field work and you're known for writing about animals and places that you've experienced firsthand. What are some highlights of the adventures we can follow in your new book? It would be meeting with chimpanzees in the headwaters of the Congo that had never seen humans before or being eye to eye with whales underwater. But at the same time, again, I'm thinking I share 98, 99% of my genes with, with these chimps. And, or this whale has a brain that is three to four times the size of mine. And how do most people view these animals? What do they assume they're capable of? And you look, I'm drawn to the wild places and remote places, but I'm also drawn to look through a microscope and, and to pour through the literature on the microbes in our body, our microbiome, on the mitochondria that power every human cell. We've got, I got 30 trillion of them and every single one has mitochondria as the energy source. I couldn't live without it. And mitochondria are modified bacteria. I'm looking at trees out my window as I talk to you, Ryan, and people know what a lichen is. It's an algae plus a fungus. Well, that's partly correct. It's uh, algae plus a couple of kinds of fungus plus bacteria. It's a, it's a little ecosystem. And we are too. And every one of my 30 trillion human cells has mitochondria in it that are doing the work of keeping me alive. They provide the spark of life. And most people don't know how that works. They don't know that we're dependent on our microbiome to digest things. And then these little modified bacteria inside each cell, not just in our guts or our mouth, but in every human cell, every plant cell, every creature above the size of bacteria is a joint creature. It's a joint venture, a compound creature, a, a partnership. And the more you look, the more you find that all nature consists of these kinds of partnerships. We're very good in science at separating things into categories. We also have centuries of practice of assuming that we are really different from nature, that we are special, superior in many ways, and that when environmentalists like myself come, you know, running in the room saying the sky is falling or, uh, okay, it's, maybe it's not falling, but it's getting warmer and the seas are changing and they're going to be, they predict that the weight of plastics in the oceans is going to outweigh those, that of fish by the year 2050 or whatever. People are still thinking, well, saving nature is sort of a nice thing to do if we've got time and money. It's an option but it's a concern of a special interest group. And so let's have a political debate about it. And no, it's what we're made of, is what shaped us, is who we are, and is how everything works. Why do you think that people downplay the ecological challenges that we face? Mental self-preservation, but also I just don't think there's an understanding of what nature is made of and how it works and the links and connections. Again, we're looking at the parts, but an ecosystem consists of the parts and all the processes between them. To give an example, okay, I'd be out watching elephants, which have a brain 
three times the size of ours. And looking at their social behavior, and they're very altruistic creatures. They take wonderful care of each other. They're very bright. They use tools like sticks to scratch themselves and that sort of thing. But I'm seeing myself in them and them in me, but I'm also seeing what makes this ecosystem work that you, you can be out on a dry African plain that's subject to periodic severe droughts, and yet it has this bounty of wildlife in the reserves, at least, not so much anymore outside them. And then I, I start focusing down again or drilling down, whatever phrase you want to use, and say, I'm seeing termite mounds everywhere, and they're recycling all the nutrients, along with the dung beetles and all these things most people don't pay much attention to. Without them, there's no savanna. Without them, there is no megafauna. And we say, oh, a termite, I know what that is. There are these social insect species that live in hives of uh, hundreds of thousands or a couple million, and they eat wood and plant debris. And hey, I've, I've heard they digest it with the help of protozoans inside their guts, which is what we do, what most animals do. But it turns out, yes, that's true, but the digestive enzymes come from bacteria on the cell wall of the protozoan that helps, <laughs> helps the termite feed itself, which helps the ecosystem's richness be what sustained over time, despite the use of it by uh, 12,000 pound elephants eating everything, eating 400 pounds of forage a day. So you talk a lot about the similarities between humans and other animals. What do you think makes us distinctive? I think we are evolving. And of course, whenever you use the word evolving, people have different concepts of what's going on. But we, look, we've been around 350,000 years as homo sapiens. And for millions of years before that is one kind of hominid or another. And we didn't reach a population worldwide of a million until about 12,000 years ago. And now we number 8 billion. And we, the Earth has to provide room for as many people as there were on the whole globe 10,000 years ago every four or five days now. So it's a whole different set of things. That means we're very successful. So there's a tendency to criticize among us environmentalists. I've done my share. Try to make You're trying to alarm and awaken people to what's going on. But th this is just people being people. This is what species do. They compete and they change and they gain an advantage in competition for food and resources. Well, we're top dog on that. When we, we have done a wonderful job, and you asked me how, we evolve with genes and we evolve through memes. So we're, this is the transmission of knowledge from generation to generation, and that determines our behavior and our success. And we are outstanding in that category. We're not the only animal that does it. I've spent a lot of time with killer whales, for example, and they live about as long as we do. They live in very tight families. They have brains four times the size of ours, and they're learning all their lives. There are different cultures of killer whales. Anthropologists study killer whales the way they would tribes in New Guinea or something. They have different cultures. That leads to different habits, 
and food habits and use of habitats and different kinds of behavior. And pretty soon you've got killer whales cultures that don't associate with each other anymore. They don't interbreed. They're doing much the same thing. They're evolving through the transmission of learned information. Elephants do that. And it's an important part, but nobody does it quite like humans with quite the creativity and the inventiveness of the human species. So we won, we did it. But what worked for us back when there were 8 million of us or 800 million of us even doesn't necessarily work when there are 8,000 million of us as there are today. And what do you see as the environmental consequences of population growth? When, when I was in college learning how to do conservation, there were fewer than half as many people on the globe. When we talk about saving nature, nature means a lot of things, different ways to different people. But we think of it in terms of the big, wild, charismatic creatures that catch our attention. And, you know, these things are vanishing in front of our eyes. The environmental consequences of a logarithmically increasing human population that has to provide for millions of new people every week are, A, we're terraforming the planet. We're, we're changing the skies. We're warming them. We're putting a different mix of gases in them and concentrations of gases. We're changing the pH or the acidity of the seas. We've got most of the coral reefs on the planet sick or dying. Most of the commercial fish species have been seriously overharvested. Many are, are on their way out. So that's the air, the seas, and then the human footprint of disturbance extends across 83% of the land surface of the planet. So we're changing everything. And there's simply no room left for big, wonderful creatures and all the lesser ones that, that go with that same ecosystem. There's been a 75% loss of insects in some areas where they've actually bothered to go out and, and keep track. The biomass or living weight of mammals on the planet, 96% of it consists of human beings and their livestock now. That leaves 4% for all the wild creatures that we pay attention to, all the wild mammals. That's pretty serious stuff. This isn't an environmental issue. This isn't, you know, me being an alarmist. This is the Earth, Mother Earth suffering a stroke. I mean, this is a mass extinction event going on. So I'm a cheerleader and an arm waver for, for wolverines, for grizzly bears, for elephants, whatever I've been working on, that I see a, a way to get the word out and more attention to the situation. Maybe I can help. But then I thought, man, I am not going to anywhere near being able to keep up with the pace of, of losses here and the extent of them in, in the living communities around us. So that's why I took on the task of writing a book about how we think of ourselves and how we think about nature. And if we think that saving nature is an option and we think we are qualitatively different from the rest of the living world, it was just plain wrong. And I wanted to show how in terms of our genetic ties to everything, in terms of the microbiome in us and in each cell, in terms of the behavioral qualities we share with other animals, 
I, I notice in reading scientific papers that one of the more common phrases appearing now is a trait formerly thought to be unique to humans, which means we're finding abilities to reason and, and forethought, things like counting and problem solving. We're discovering them in more and more creatures. We are like them and they are like us. And saving ourselves is no different than saving these animals. When you reach a rate of extinction like we're seeing, then that is promising a increasingly uncomfortable future for ourselves. What do you envision as a healthy role for modern humans in the global ecosystem? I would talk first about human health. And I don't mean just, you know, surviving, increasing numbers of people and diminished resources. The positive part of this is, look, I, I did call this book Four-Fifths of Grizzly. And we've actually recovered the grizzly from its low point in the 1970s. There's a lot we can do. And there's a lot we have done. We deserve credit for it. Our societies haven't achieved this before in the face of increasing odds. So there's a lot of upbeat tales to tell. And I, I made sure to tell readers about cases of what works and where, like restoring animals on islands, um, like big visionary initiatives to connect the wildlands that we have already set aside, like the Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative which is 2,000 miles from the Peel River drainage in the Yukon to south of Yellowstone Park. And it's linking together all the wonderful parks and preserves we've got already established, but that won't hold up over time as isolated islands. They've got to be connected. That's one way of coming at it. The other is a, a really intriguing fact that if contact with nature is... Why do you think doctors are, are, more and more doctors are recommending time outdoors for people as a health measure? And it's because study after study from Australia, the United Kingdom, other parts of Europe and the U.S. show that when you go outdoors in contact with nature, your heart rate slows, your blood pressure drops, your immune system gets boosted, your stress levels, as measured by adrenaline and cortisol, drop, and your cognitive abilities shift from this intense, stressful concentration to a relaxed awareness that actually sharpens your thinking processes. So this is just pure medical science. People who spend as little as 20 minutes a day, a few times a week, outdoors, in contact with nature are not only significantly healthier, but they live significantly longer. Exercise achieves some of the same positive results. But if you're combining exercise and with, with being outdoors, you're doubling down on your, on your health and, and on your longevity. I can't think of a more positive reason to keep nature around us. Uh, so it isn't just, oh, save this animal because it's really pretty or it's really majestic. It's really powerful and inspiring. It's save nature because it's going to save, it's literally going to save you. This is not the old argument of keep this wildflower because it may hold the cure for cancer or keep this insect because it has some stru wonderful structural talent in its genes for building things that we may want to borrow for all kinds of processes. That's there, but it's just go outside. 
<laughs> kneel down on the grass, go into a green space, go to a forest bathing course, or, or just get in touch with it, and it's going to pay off, no end. And as we talk about that with modern society, many Native cultures had and continue to have very different views of how humans connect with nature. What can we learn from them? Well, that they see themselves more as part of a circle of life. We've just made this assumption for a couple thousand years that we are special creations and we can kind of take nature or leave it. And we're meant to be the leader. We're, we're, we're either superior to it and we can do all we want as long as we want, as much as we want to anything in the way of changing natural systems. And we'll figure a way out of it. Uh, that that assumption and then the idea that our brain our great brains and and our ability to manipulate things and our technology and learning we we've liberated ourselves from nature and that's why i keep emphasizing the you know the microbes in us and on us and a lot of these microbes by the way are producing hormones very similar to or identical to ones we do which means there's increasing research into how they affect our moods and how that affects our thoughts. I'm, I'm trying to see the individual in nature. And there are no individuals in nature above the level of bacteria because we've all got these connections with microbes and with other creatures around us that have shaped us. When I talked about, well, you mentioned other cultures, there's a certain respect for and identification with the other life forms around us, which to me seems natural. But I think to a lot of people, especially in the West, it's a, a bit of a foreign concept. It undercuts our assumption of superiority. And I don't know if, what to say, Ryan. We've, we've invented a, a, a nice story about where we belong in nature, but it just doesn't jibe with any of the facts that I've been reading for the last years in scientific journals and other sources. Well, given those experiences and everything you've been, that you've been lucky to see and study, what makes you optimistic about the future? Well, I'd say I, I could cite frightening statistics all day, and it is it's terrifying out there in a lot of ways with the pace of change, because I don't think we're being realistic about it. It's like the current debates over, over climate. Why it's even being debated is beyond me, but I don't want to say anything's impossible. I mean, we're talking about people, and we do have special qualities, and as long as the human imagination and willpower are involved, all things are possible. We can pull out of this ecological nosedive, and we can have many of the, or most of the things we desire, but that would also include a healthy, natural, thriving community of life around us, the, the very community that shaped us and our ancestors and built us and is in our genes. And I think it's just a matter of, you know, it sounds terrifically difficult, but at the same time, it's just a simple shift from saying we should be more like traditional cultures that are able to develop a different kind of relationship and respect for the rest of the living world. Whoever convinced us that we were separate and, and that there's this big border between us and all the life around us that actually sustains humanity. Well, Doug, thank you for sharing your adventures and research to help us find a new way of engaging with the natural world. 
And thank you for joining this episode of Climate Changers. Well, thank you, Ryan. And, you know, I, do, I would just tell people there are some big initiatives. I mentioned some in the book that could use all kinds of support, but you can also go out and make life better for people and for a lot of other creatures just by creating a little neighborhood park, you know, in a vacant lot and supporting a, a land trust that keeps open space here and there around urban areas and in the suburbs. And then any other way you can protect pieces of nature and then link them together because, that's again, those connections have to hold up over time. And animals have to be able to move to adapt to changing conditions like climate, wildfire, disease, floods, you know, all the things that happen over time. They've got to be able to have that option to move and adapt. So more green spaces, more connections between them, and there's still plenty of room, especially with our technological and, and uh, what our intellectual abilities, we can figure out a plan where all this is possible instead of just stomping around saying, this is mine, this is mine, we can do whatever we want. Let's just keep in mind, any everything is within our power to achieve if we are thinking about nature and ourselves in a way that aligns with the facts about who we are and what nature is. Every episode of Climate Changers has a call to action posted in the show notes. Each call to action has been curated to make it easy for you to help create the changes that we discussed today. Thank you for joining Climate Changers. Until next time.